I have the pleasure this morning of introducing a new series. Uh, we've finished our series on Ezra just before Christmas, and now we're starting a new series uh, on Jesus himself, and the series is entitled, Who Do I Say I Am? And actually, the question of who Jesus is, is a hugely important and controversial question. Um, many people, most people, almost everyone will accept that a man called Jesus existed and that he lived uh, in and around Nazareth and Jerusalem uh, at the, uh, a couple of thousand years ago. There's not much doubt that this person existed. But there's a lot of debate about who he was, who he is. Many see him as we do, as the Son of God, as, as our Saviour, as God himself in human form. But many others debate whether he was just an ordinary guy or maybe a quite a good teacher or, good, or a prophet, but no one more significant than that. Maybe he was just the flavour of the month for a couple of years in the first century. Actually, what I found is a lot of people don't really spend any time really worrying about what they believe about Jesus. They don't worry if, if what they believe or think about him is even consistent or logical. They're vaguely aware of who he is, but they don't really apportion him any sort of significance in their lives. I, I think back <clears throat> to when I was uh, just after university, I did a gap year uh, working with students. And one day I went over to Huddersfield. I was living in Leeds at the time, in Yorkshire. And uh, I went to Huddersfield to help them with some mission. And we were doing some questionnaires. The questionnaires just had lots of very open questions about who God is, what people thought. And I remember I, I was down to my last questionnaire. I thought, I'm going to make this a good one. I'm going I'm to really challenge myself here. I'm going to do someone who I might be a bit intimidating. And I saw this guy coming towards me. I swear, he was like eight foot four. He had this rugby league T-shirt on. It was a freezing cold day. He was in a T-shirt. He was just muscle. It was a bit like looking in a mirror. And... <laughs> And I saw him coming towards me. I thought, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my last questionnaire on this guy. So I said, excuse me, sir, can I, do you mind if I just ask you a few questions? Hey, 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 go on, no problem. You have to forgive my Yorkshire accent. Anyone here from Yorkshire, Jim? It'll be all right, don't worry. Um, I said, okay, question one, do you believe in God? God? No, 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 no such thing as God. Complete make-believe does not exist. There is no God. God does not exist. Okay, fairly, fairly clear answer there. Um, okay, next question. Who do you think Jesus is or was? And he thought for a moment, then he went, Son of God. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of sense. But that, you know, that is a classic. I did, I did try and challenge that, by the way. I won't go into my whole theological answer of it. But when it comes to Jesus, people seem quite happy to not give him much of a thought. And it doesn't matter if what they think about him doesn't make sense. He's just a random figure in history. But actually, I think it's really important that we think about and we know who Jesus is. And actually, the starting point for that is Scripture. And actually, what this series is looking at, which is what Jesus said about himself. Because Jesus made some really, really radical, bold, unbelievable, well, not unbelievable, but un incredible claims about himself. And actually, we're going to be looking through the Gospel of John at eight separate things that Jesus said about himself. 
And all of these things begin, I know there's only seven on there, there's another one we're tagging in. Um, <laughs> just work with me this morning. Um, all of these claims started with, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These are incredible claims. And they're not claims that we can just simply put to one side and forget about. They're claims which leave us with a requirement to make a decision. Do I trust this guy? Do I think he is who he said he is? And if I do, then what does my life look like? When we do the Alpha Course, there's a quote that is used <coughs> in the very first session by C.S. Lewis. It's a quite famous quote, and I'm going to read it. It's really helpful. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us and he did not intend to. It's quite a hard-hitting statement, isn't it? But he's absolutely right. Because we are going to see Jesus say some incredible things. And the things that we see him say, they don't leave us with that option. Say, oh, he's a great teacher. Because he makes much bolder claims than that. So either we say... You are who you say you are, or you're not. You're something much worse. But to just, just fob him off as, a, as an important teacher or, or a rabbi, it's not enough. And many of the phrases that you, we're going to look at here, I think will be very familiar to most of us. Anyone who's, who's been a Christian for any length of time has probably heard these phrases. Um, but I want in this series, can I encourage us to try and put ourselves in the place of the people who are hearing these phrases for the first time. That what's being said is a brand new piece of information to you. Imagine you don't already know who Jesus is. Imagine being part of that crowd, following him, and hearing these statements for the first time. Maybe you've been intrigued by these tales of a miracle worker, and you've gone along to listen to him, and you're hearing these words for the first time. And as we do that, I think we'll really gain something of the impact of what Jesus is saying. Because, I don't know about you, when you see these statements, to me... They don't automatically jump out at me necessarily because I've heard them so many times. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus is the bread of life. I know Jesus is the light of the world. Oh, oh great. Uh, yeah, isn't it lovely? But actually, these are incredibly powerful statements, packed with truth, packed with meaning, packed with um, difference making to our lives. So as we look at this series, please try and approach it from a, a position of hearing it for the first time. Just try and get into that mindset and really think about how these words would have landed in the first century. Before we go any further, I want to look at the significance of how he starts each of these phrases. As I said, he starts each phrase with, I am. Now, in the Greek language of the New Testament, which is at the top there, you can see that those words uh, in Greek are ego, amai. Again, my Greek's not quite as good as my Yorkshire, so you have to trust me on that one. 
Um, now, on the first glance, starting a sentence when you're talking about yourself with the words I am, it's not very remarkable, is it? It's quite normal. You, you normally say I am this, I am that. But again, if we put ourselves in the shoes of those people of the sandals, of those people who were hearing for the first time, first century Jewish people, the words I am would have carried tremendous significance. And to understand that, we need to dive quickly into the Old Testament, uh, Exodus 3. Because in that, in that passage, we see God commissioning Moses to go to the Pharaoh of Egypt. The Pharaoh of Egypt is, is enslaving the Israelite people. And God says, I want you to go to the Pharaoh and I want you to ask him to let my people go. And Moses' response, it's an interesting response, because he says to him, well, what if they ask who you are? What if they say, who sent you? Who, who do I say sent me? What's your name? What name do I give them? I have no idea what I was expecting. I was just expecting God to turn around and say, oh, it's Nigel. I'm, uh, just, just tell them Nigel sent you. <laughs> um, that's not what God said. We don't worship Nigel. God's response is, is this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God's name that he gives himself is I am. In the, in the original Hebrew, you see at the bottom there, that's the, the Hebrew script for it. Uh, they use the word Yahweh. And over centuries, that word has become incredibly precious for the people of God, uh, especially for Jewish people. That, you know, at times they wouldn't even write or say that word. They would abbreviate it or use a different word. It was, it was seen as a, such a sacred word because it's the very name that God gives to himself an interesting name is it why would God say that his name is I am why would he choose that and I think the simplest answer that I can give and that's really helpful that Becky brought that word this morning about, about the name of God being powerful and all the names that he gives himself but it's I am but the simplest thing I can give you is that it tells us that he exists it tells us that he exists he is God is real He's there. He's tangible. That's what he's trying to communicate to Moses. Moses needed assurance in that moment. What do I say that your name is? And God says, I am. What you need to know is that I'm real. I am here. And that underpins everything about how we, what we know and think about God, doesn't it? Our whole faith, our whole existence, in fact, our whole eternity depends on whether God is or he isn't, doesn't it? We're not sat here this morning if God isn't. God says, my very name is I am. His own name is a confirmation that he is real. He is genuine. He is alive. Not I was. Not I will be. I am. So Jesus' choice in the New Testament in John, to use all these statements beginning with I am, is hugely, hugely significant. Because all through his ministry, he's encountering people who are desperate to know more about him. Who are you? How are you doing these miracles? With what authority are you teaching and you saying these things? You're forgiving sins. How, are you, how can you do that? Who is he? Is he just a teacher, a prophet? Or is he a hoax or is he a crackpot? But Jesus' statements very deliberately see him saying that he's not just a normal guy. He is God himself. He is the I am, the ego Amai, the Yahweh. So each statement is built on that foundation that Jesus is God. 
And then on, those, on, that, on that basic statement, he builds more and more truth with further revelation of who he is. So this morning, we're going to look at one of those statements. And it's in John 6, saying, I am the bread of life. Now, there's quite a big chunk of scripture. I'm going to read some to you now. I'm afraid I haven't got the scripture on the screen this morning. So if you've got Bibles, please open them up to John 6 and maybe just share them and, and listen. Um, I'm not going to read everything. And I'm going to zero in on, on a few verses. But let me just give you the, the setting. So I'm going to start reading at verse 25 of John 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him... God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose, I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Just skipping on a little bit to verse 48. Very true, verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Pretty incredible claims in there, aren't they? And this is, these, are, these are the three verses that we're focusing on. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. I am a living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So let's put ourselves in the context. Let's try and listen to the words of Jesus if we're hearing them for the first time. Let me just give you a bit of background to the story. At the start of this passage, it said that they found him on the other side of the lake. Well, actually, chapter 6 begins with one of the most famous miracles that Jesus did. He's addressing a huge 
crowd on a mountain next to the Sea of Galilee, and we're told there are 5,000 there. Actually, it's 5,000 men. The way they counted people in those days, they were counting the men. There would have been women and children there as well. We're probably looking at more like eight to 10,000 people on that mountain with Jesus. And that, that crowd is getting hungry. They've listened to Jesus in the hot uh, and the heat of the day, and they're getting tired and hungry. And Tesco's is closed, and there's, there's people, people waiting to be fed. And Jesus says to his disciples, look, we need, to, we need to feed these guys. And he says to the disciples, look, you do it. Find a way to feed them. But they're short of ideas. And actually, the disciples are not rich people. They've left a lot of their worldly wealth behind to follow Jesus. And they're saying, look, how are we supposed to feed all these thousands of people? And then we see probably one of the most despicable acts in, in Bible history. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Andrew steals that kid's packed lunch. He steals it. This poor kid, the one person in the entire crowd who had the foresight to bring a bit of lunch with him. And Andrew says, I'll have that. Look, Jesus, found some food. And the rest of the disciples are like, goodness me. Have you no shame? Like, how's that going to feed all these people? Give the boy his lunch back. I'm paraphrasing slightly. But incredibly, what we know happens is Jesus takes that small lunch, that five loaves of bread, those two fishes, and he multiplies it miraculously. And everyone is fed and with, with lots of food to spare. And of course, people are hugely excited by what has happened. But what happens next is Jesus begins to sense that actually this excitement is getting out of hand. Jesus, we know, is on a journey. His ultimate destination, he knows it. The others don't know it yet. He is heading to Jerusalem because he knows he's going to die. He's got a sacrifice to make. He's going to die for the sins of the world. That's, that's his destination. He knows that. No one else does. But actually, these people are seeing someone special. They're thinking, this guy's awesome. This guy's the answer to all our problems. Us Jews, we're, we're being held captive by the Roman rulers of the day. Life is miserable. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior to lead us out of it. And this is the guy. Did you see what he did with the bread and the fish? We've got to make this guy our leader. He's got to lead a revolution against the Roman Empire. And he senses that that's about to happen, that actually if he sticks around here much longer, they're going to pretty much force him to be their king. And they're going to force him to do something he doesn't want to do, which is to overthrow the Roman Empire. He knows he's got something bigger and better to do. So actually what Jesus does, quite how he does it, I don't know. Handy when you're 100% God as well as 100% human. He quietly slips away, it says, under the cover of night. And he jumps in a boat and crosses the sea. As he's crossing the sea, he casually performs another miracle of calming the storm. That's another story. Um, but when we come next, is he's on the other side of the water. And he's actually discovered he's been followed. The rest of the crowd have twigged where he's gone. They've got in a, in a flotilla of boats and they've come across to find him. And when they find him, oh, sorry, that's my little car scene from the uh, feeding the 5,000. People complaining that they're vegan or that the bread isn't gluten-free. Um, uh, when they find him, he says to them, look, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus knows 
But the reason they've followed him is because they want more miracles. And they want more bread. What they're interested in is the stuff that he can do. They want to see more. They want him to perform for them again and again. He sees that in their heart. They're not, they're not actually wanting to follow him. They wanted to follow his miracles. They wanted to see more. And they're not thinking about the truth behind what they're seeing. They're actually, they're missing the I am bit. They're missing the bit that he's God. And he wants them to pursue him for who he is, not for what he can do. And then that, of course, leads him to using these words. He says that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want to spend the rest of this morning just looking at three ways in which Jesus being the bread of life can impact us. And the first is this. Jesus is the bread that satisfies. I, I put into Google satisfied and that's what came up. He does look quite satisfied, that guy, doesn't he? Um, a little bit arrogant perhaps as well. Um, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. The crowd has seen Jesus, Jesus' incredible miracle. And in John's account, it says that they ate until they were full, or that they ate until they'd had their fill. But we all know, don't we, that even after the biggest, heaviest meal, even after Christmas dinner, when you've eaten your fill, and you swear to yourself you're never going to eat again because you feel that horrible and bloated, the next morning, you're, like, you're bang up for a bacon butty or something, aren't you? I'm not anymore because I'm vegetarian now. Um, I still can't get used to saying that. Um, but fullness is temporary, isn't it? It's temporary. And Jesus is saying, look, you're asking for fullness. You want to be filled of more and more bread. You want more and more miracles. You want more and more of this stuff that I'm doing. But what I can offer you is satisfaction. That's different. I can give you more bread. I can conjure up more bread for you anytime you want. I can do it. I've got the whole of heaven and earth at my disposal. But if I do that for you, you'll just want more. You'll just want me to perform again and again. You'll want more miracles. You'll want more bread. If you just, you'll just keep wanting. You won't be full for long. What I'm offering you is something you don't even know you need. Come and find satisfaction with me. Because I'm everything you could ever want and more. I'm offering you eternal satisfaction, not temporary fullness. Does that make sense? what we have here I think is something that's true then and it's true even more of our society today we are obsessed with fullness we're obsessed with wanting more and more and more we are a consumer culture we want the latest we want the most exciting thing we want what's next and we are rarely actually satisfied think about your life this morning is there something you're waiting for is there something you're hoping for something that makes you think oh if only I had that would just be that little bit sweeter. Like that life would be complete. If I had that, that's it. I'll have it all then. Everything would be great. It could be a job or a house or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a, a child or a PlayStation. For me right now, it's a bigger house. I mean, if we could just have that extra bedroom and a bit more living space downstairs, then life would be so much better. I mean, we'd be, we'd be settled then. That would be it. We'd have everything we need. Life would be perfect. And do you know what? It's not wrong to want those things but if you think about your life what are the things you've already got now that back a year or two ago you're thinking if I just had that life would be complete and now you've got it 
you're thinking of something else. I'm not satisfied. I can think of countless things that I've waited for and prayed for fervently or just actually downright lusted after. I really want that. I really want it. And I've pictured how awesome life is going to be if I just get that. And now I've got them, I want something else. I was full, but the fullness doesn't last. An example is our car. Some of you know me long enough to remember we used to have a, a collapsed out old Ford Focus. It served us wonderfully well. We ran it into the ground. It made horrendous noises by the time we got rid of it. And then we had Chloe. Um, Chloe's my daughter, not a car. Um, <laughs> and we started, started to want a bigger, newer car. Because I thought, well, you know, for practical and financial reasons, actually, uh, better fuel economy, because I'm middle-aged now and that matters to me, um, more space, more safety features, um, ju just a nicer car. I mean, the technology on cars these days is so much better. That Ford Focus is, is just really old and rubbish, to be honest. I don't want that anymore. What I really want is a C-Max. I really want a Ford C-Max. It's bigger, cleaner, better, runs better, sounds better. It's a great car. And you know what? Thanks to the wonderful bank of mother and father-in-law. I don't think they're here this morning, are they? But yeah, they helped us get our, our car the Ford C-Max, a lovely white car you see out there today. It's a, it's a cracking car, it really is. Um, quite exciting, actually. You know, it, it just runs like a dream. It's such a quiet engine, so much space. Um, it's a great car. And it, well, it was a great car until my kids covered it in crumbs and mud, and then I dented it at Penny Lane by driving into a trolley park barrier. But it's still a great, great car. It's got everything we need. It even accommodates Jacob. So we've got three kids now, and they all fit in the car. And we can still go on holiday and fit everything we need in the boot. That is a great car. A really, really, really great car. It's a huge blessing to us. I love that car. Really love it. <laughs> but, <laughs> have you seen the Ford Edge? <laughs> now that, <laughs> that is a car. I mean, that's bigger. It's even more fuel efficient, which really matters to me. <laughs> it's just nicer when you look at it. I mean, that is a, that's a sweet car, isn't it? Wouldn't life just be that little bit better if I got rid of that Ford C-Max with a dent in it and got that lovely Ford Edge? Oh. I mean, the C-Max is six years old now. I mean, it's, it's on its last legs, isn't it? It's done 40,000 miles, so the Ford Edge, I mean, it just, just feels better. Is that familiar to people? I mean, I literally have everything I need in the car I've already got. When it comes to cars in the Butler household, I'm full. Got everything I need, more than what I need, and yet not quite satisfied. Just want a little bit more. And you know what? I think this is more, much more than a material problem for us. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing here. I think this seeps into our spiritual lives. We see it with miracles and spiritual experiences and and all the things that we we feel that we want. We feel that God has promised us that He owes us. We want that buzz. We want that more. We want that, that amazing, tingly spiritual experience that we don't feel we've had for a while. And we see God almost like a performance artist, like the crowd did. They wanted another miracle. They wanted another sign. As if, as if he's a performing monkey for them. Because they want fullness. They want more. Give me more. Not satisfied with you feeding 10,000 people with five loaves and, and two fishes. Give us more. 
And they say to him, what work must we do that we get more? What do we do? And Jesus says, it's as simple as this. The work of God is to believe in him he sent. That's all you need to do. If you want satisfaction, if you want everything you need, all you need to do is believe in me. And yet still they ask more. Verse 30, still they say, okay, okay, if you're the one who sent, who God sent, you want us to believe in you, show us another miracle. Do something else. Show us what's the sign that we need to believe. And it's like, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. I'm not just about miracles. I think we can sometimes get caught up in chasing experiences with God and chasing the solutions <coughs> to all of our problems, whatever it is in our lives that we're, we're, we're thirsting for, yearning for. Again, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with just thirsting for something and yearning for something. But when our relationship with God becomes all about that yearning and all about that thirsting and all about that, that what's missing, actually, I think we, we tip the balance somehow. When all of our time spent with God is spent asking for that one thing we think is missing. When all of that time is spent with God saying, if only I had this, if only you provided this, you gave me this. It's not to say that those gaps can't be filled and won't be filled, but we get distracted when that becomes what we're all about. Because we need to remember this. This is 2 Peter, verse 1. His divine power has given us, and hear this, everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Do you hear that? There may be gaps in our lives. There may be things that we want, and they're fine to want them. But we must never lose sight of the fact he's already given us everything we need. Everything we need to be satisfied in him. Everything. There will be things that we still feel we, we want. We might want healing for something. We might want something to be provided for. We might want a revelation of something. We might want clarity. It might be something material. But at the same time, we need to recognize and hold on to the fact that if that thing never arrives, if we never get it, that satisfaction is still very, very much available in Jesus. We have the word of God, chock full of power and revelation and blessing for us. We have the spirit living within us, God's very presence inside us. We have all of his gifts and wisdom and love. The spirit that tells us God is our Father. That testifies to us, Abba, Father. We've got it. And what more could we need? You know, as I've, as I've prepared this, I know I've got a heck of a lot of learning to do, as I've proved in my car and my house and all that sort of stuff, on how to rest in Jesus and to find satisfaction in Him. I'm feeding on Him instead of my earthly desires, even my spiritual desires, to feed on Him. Because he tells in this passage, I am everything you need. I'm more than enough. Be satisfied with me. Okay? That's the first point. <coughs> Secondly, Jesus is the bread that sustains. 
verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes it has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus not only satisfies us, he sustains us. So feeding on Jesus is essential for our survival in this world. He is the source of our survival. Do you know, he talks about manna in this, in this part. Um, again, if you're familiar with the story of, of Exodus and Moses leading the people out of slavery with Egypt, and they end up in the wilderness, and actually God, you know, they've left without enough food to survive on. They take some bread with them, but it, it's not enough to survive on for all these thousands of people. And so God provides this miraculous meal called manna. Every morning, there's manna, by kind of, I think it's described as kind of wafery, honey-type honey substance, comes down and settles in the camp, and they gather some in, and they take it, and it's enough for every day, and the next morning, there's more again. And he provides it. And he literally sends that food from heaven. Without that food, the people of God were at risk of starvation and death. And now Jesus says, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm like this manna. I am the bread sent directly from heaven for you to feed on and survive. It's an incredible claim. Incredible claim. Again, imagine you're hearing this for the first time. Imagine you're listening to this Jesus guy you've just heard, on, heard about on the grapevine. And he's saying this stuff to you. And you're like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? This is radical. You are standing in front of me, looking very much like a human being, and telling me your bread that I can eat. What? And you're sent from heaven? Who do you think you are? Where's this coming from? It's no wonder that actually some of the early critics of Christianity completely misunderstood it and accused Christians of being cannibals because there was so much stuff about feeding on Jesus and eating the flesh and eating bread of Christ. They said, oh, we're a bunch of cannibals. Really weird. And yet, this is what Jesus wants his people to understand. He is the bread that helps us to, to survive and to thrive in this world. You know, feeding on Jesus in our daily lives is the key to living well here and now. In fact, a life spent feeding on Christ is life in abundance. We can do so much more in him, full of him, satisfied with him, than without. And think about diet. Think about what you eat. You know, we need to eat regular, reasonable amounts of food. In my case, regular, too much food. <laughs> um, but if we hardly eat at all, what happens? We starve. We don't have enough. We don't function. And if we then just wait every now and again just to have a, a massive splurge, a massive feast, then that's not good for our bodies. I remember hearing about, I can't remember who it was now, someone who did a 40-day fast for Lent, literally fasted all through Lent. All he had was water. And he actually got through it great. And on the first day after Lent, he treated himself to a fry-up and ended up literally nearly dying. He went straight to hospital, had to have his stomach pumped because his, his body just wasn't ready for that level of 
detoxing and grief and all that sort of stuff. You know, if, if we starve ourselves and then just, just have an occasional big hit of food, it's not good for our body, is it? And it's the same with Jesus. We need a balanced diet of Christ. If we starve ourselves for weeks and months, if we don't go to his word, if we don't spend time in prayer, if we don't spend time worshipping, if we don't spend time with each other, entering into the presence of God, it's not good for us. We soon start to come apart at the seams. I know I do. We soon start to make silly choices, bad decisions. We soon start to feel empty. Actually, Jesus is satisfying and sustaining and he wants to be part of our everyday diet. He's there for us 24-7. You can, we can have a, a snack at half seven in the morning. You can spend an hour with him, feast him at lunchtime. You can do whatever. He's there. He's there available for us. And he wants to sustain us through his presence in our lives. I encourage us to get that balanced diet of Jesus in our lives, to regularly feed on his bread, to regularly come to him for because he gives life. He gives life. Prayer and scripture and worship and fellowship with each other, they are all essential meals for us. If we go without, we struggle. Final thing. Jesus is the bread that saves. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus looks here at the big picture. Eternity. Hopefully in our lives on earth, we will always have enough food, whether it's however long we live, we'll hopefully have enough, like, enough food on our tables to keep us going. But earth isn't it, is it? Our lives on earth are temporary and passing, and they will end. But God is eternal. And the Bible teaches us that there will come a day when he will judge us. And we'll either end up with him forever, or we'll end up apart from him forever. So to choose to eat the bread of life is to choose an eternity with Jesus. What an incredible thing that is. It's the meal that actually affects our entire existence into eternity. Again, imagine being part of that audience listening to Jesus. He's talking again of eating, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You know, eating and drinking blood in Jewish culture is strictly forbidden. In their, in their food and dietary laws, it was 
a big no-no. You wouldn't have a rare steak in first century Jerusalem. But Mosaic law, the shedding of blood, of sacrifice, was essential for forgiveness and for being right with God. And so eating the bread of Jesus, the bread that is sacrificed, his body sacrificed for us, is essential for our forgiveness. And only by partaking in that sacrifice, only by believing that he is who he says he is, only by accepting the sacrifice he made on the cross for us, can our sins be forgiven and can our eternal salvation be secured. And this is where Jesus is different from the manna in the desert. Because those who ate the manna ultimately still died. It was a provision from God to get them through a season in their journey. Jesus' bread from heaven is eternal. We've got it forever. And the eating of Jesus' bread is simply about putting our faith in him. But we must actively do it. We can't just smell the bread. We can't just say, ah, I really like that Jesus bloke. Seems like a good guy. Good teacher. Appreciate some of the stuff he did. Not too sure about the salvation stuff and him being God. But you know what? I think he's a good guy, and I'm pretty sure he'll see me right, and I'll probably end up in heaven, hopefully. I'll just, I'll just have a sniff of the bread, and that'll be enough for me. No, not enough. He says we've got to feed on him. We've got to put our faith into him. Our parents' faith won't save us. Our spouse's faith won't save us. We each need to put our own faith into Jesus. But when we do that, when we put our faith into him, when we eat the bread of life, it is life eternal and in abundance. That is incredible, isn't it? Absolutely incredible. He invites us each, each of us, to our own personal meal. And when we come to that meal and we confess him as our saviour, the result is eternal satisfaction eternal sustenance and eternal salvation. It's the most important meal we ever eat. Jesus is the bread that satisfies, sustains and saves. Amen.